one of the one of the uh, news outlets had an interview yesterday with with somebody who had helped recruit them, another fellow Marine. Uh, there's a bunch of them over there. If you Google American Servicemen International Legion, you should be able to find it. And also, I still stand by my statement that Russia is treating Ukraine not as a sovereign state, but as a rebellion, and only sovereign states can enlist foreign nationals. And I think that's the, the hinge of the Russian argument is they're not lawful combatants because foreign nationals can't fight with rebels. Thank you, Raymond. I think that's exactly what I needed to uh to suss this one out, just what I needed. Thank you so much. And it, it goes to show just how gross and disgusting uh, Russia's arguments for this war have been. Uh, so thank you very much. And uh, in the United States, we would just say hogwash to all of that. Gents, thank you. Thank you, Peter. Um, if I remember correctly, the International Legion is a part of Nazgardia, the, the Ukrainian National Guard. I think that it's actually a unit unto itself. I might be wrong, but Raver, do you have uh, more detail? No, I have a separate comment whenever it's my proper turn. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to step back. Uh, gents, thank you so much. And Tom and Gunny, uh, really always appreciate the, um, the conversation and the insight. And uh, previously, I, I shot CJ a note because his insight on the German military transfers was just so useful. And uh, I'm deeply appreciative to all of the insights and expertise that everyone brings to this space. You help make me smarter, and I really am thankful. I do believe they have to sign contracts, though. I do believe Ukraine makes them sign contracts. That way they are protected under the POW. Oh, yeah, of course, Mary, 100%. I mean, what Russia is saying is is a war crime in itself to not treat prisoners of war uh, with, um, the to not grant them the protections of this specific Geneva Convention is in itself a war crime. Uh, my concern yeah. is over the next few weeks or so, we are going to see another show trial where these Americans are also sentenced to death. And um, where I get doubly troubled uh, is, are the steps that, the, that Russia's Duma has recently taken, uh, introducing legislation to make it easier for Russian prosecutors to uh, charge Ukrainian POWs as quote unquote, Nazi criminals, right, and, right, and the penalty there would be death. All of this is a gross violation of uh, the laws of war, shall we say, and it increases what I believe it should increase pressure on Western leaders to ensure that Vladimir Putin finally gets the Nuremberg justice that that Stalin escaped many many years ago. Yeah, yeah, I believe if I re I read an article a few weeks ago that they set up a short term where the contracts are only about four to six weeks for the international legions um, for the guys to go over there, but they sign a contract just like the regular Ukrainian soldiers do. And Mary, it's, that's an excellent point, and it also gets to a bigger issue, and that is an awareness issue. Um, I can't tell you how many conversations I've had just, just about the case of the, the British POWs, uh, where the question was, well, were they, were they pillaging? Were they looting? Were they doing something you know, other than being soldiers? And that's why Russia is charging them with terroristic activities, et cetera. And the answer is no. Uh, it's, it's really hard to kind of break through that assumption that Russia would be so egregious in its violations of international law. And uh, what I'm trying to do is is raise that awareness and light a fire under our Western leaders so that the Russians know, A, 
you're not allowed to kill these guys. B, your war crimes have already been committed by trying them as you know, terrorists in the first place. And C, you will face justice at some point in the future. And Vladimir Putin has simply assumed that he's going to be like many other leaders before him who have escaped Western justice, escaped international justice. And that, that certainly must not happen. Let's hope not. That's for sure. Thank, thank you, you yeah thank you very much both um peter i hope that was uh that, that, was, that was good enough information a few people have forwarded me some um articles and tweets and stuff i'll send them, those over to you peter by the way um, i knew you guys would help i knew you guys would come through i really appreciate it thank you thank you very much peter raver go for it yeah this is in response to tom and his spitfire comments i've been I'm sitting on it for a while so in World War II, you could raid colleges and high schools and, and create draftsmen relatively quickly, throw up a building, move in some CNC machines, and get to work. A lot of modern military, military production on the stuff that actually does the killing of the enemy is conducted by robots in clean rooms. We simply don't have that anymore. So even if we have the, the physical structures on these old uh, uh, arsenals, they haven't been updated electrically. They don't have the robots. They don't have the clean rooms. And so there's a massive production bottleneck. Uh, the, the, the Gimlers and other uh, HIMARS rockets are made here in Arkansas, and I think they're made one at a time because of that. Yeah, that, that makes perfect sense. The more complex something is, the more expensive and difficult it is to manufacture. Um, well, the more expensive it's going to be. And so therefore, in peacetime, if you only need to make 10 of these things a year or 100 of these things a year, why would you spend on the industrial capacity to make a thousand in a year? I mean, you just wouldn't really, especially if you haven't got the contract to do that, you're going to lose a lot of money. Uh, and then suddenly when a conflict comes along and you do need a thousand in a year or you need 5,000 in a year, you can't just you can't just cycle up your industrial production on a dime. It's going to take time, and and it took time for the UK in World War Two for the cutting edge stuff. So, you know, clearly it's going to take time for for others. But you know, the good thing is Russia is not going to be able to increase its production either. They've got a hell of a lot of stocks of old stuff, and they're using it. But as that stuff starts to run out, they are going to do worse and worse and worse in this conflict. Um, and at the same time, Ukraine is going to get more and more. So I'm hopeful for that. I also hope that after this is over, even if we lift a lot of the Russian sanctions eventually, I think we should keep the industrial sanctions to prevent them from ever doing something like this again until we're really, really confident that they won't do it again. Um, you know, by all means, lift the sanctions on other things as and when they get the hell out of Ukraine. But don't let them rebuild their military. Why, why? They've lost all right to do that, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, they really should be reduced to a Sweden. Okay, uh, let's go on to Mary. Mary, go ahead. I was just curious, does anybody know with the whole COVID thing, what happened to our the U.S. and U.K. defense spending? Was it cut at all? I know we did a lot of... Um, spending as far as stimulus packages and things to kind of get through the pandemic. Did that cut our defense spending? Does anyone know? I haven't had a chance, but it brought back, I was thinking about to, back to World War II with um, the depression. I know Roosevelt, it was great contention between, between him and MacArthur and um, 
and Patton because he cut defense spending by about half and um, they were still very worried about Hitler. Same with Churchill in UK. So, and, and so if, it just kind of brought that up be, because that they decreased their military spending, which allowed then Hitler to then, they didn't have any of the, what they needed to then fight the clearly, war. It's a, it's a wrong historical analogy, So just to, to be quite clear. Um, no, because the whole point of the stuff during COVID was to keep the economy going through more spending and cutting spending would do the opposite. So if you look at the Great Depression, public spending dropped, broadly speaking, right, initially. And yes, defense spending was cut as a part of that. This is very different because the total spending was going up and up intentionally during the during the pandemic because of other economic issues. So defense spending, broadly speaking, was not being cut. So it, it's the complete opposite economic scenario. Oh, no, no I'm not. I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about used it as an advantage point of taking it as where we didn't have what we needed to fight technically. Yeah, and yeah, but not, it didn't happen. Uh, so defense spending did not drop during COVID. Okay, I was just curious. No, that, that, that's fine. But it, did... like, the analogy doesn't work and it's not, then the premise isn't true either, luckily. So that, that's not why. Putin attacked because he's Putin. Um, if anything, it was some, you know, in non, non-complete commitment uh, of certain Western countries to, to Russia, but it wasn't a, a question of uh, a lack of defense spending totally. It was much more a question of the willingness of uh, supplying Ukraine, helping Ukraine, supporting Ukraine, not a, not a willing, not, not a question of, you know, baseline dollars and cents, if that makes sense. Gotcha. Yep. So, it completely does. Yeah. Sorry. All right. Thank you, Devin. Just if I could just jump in, Domin. Um, UK defence spending increased last year, um, one one point seven billion increase in real terms. Um, the the expenditure's gone up. The pro- the problem is uh, there wasn't enough for all. Three. You, you're Perfect. breaking up a little bit. That's what I wanted to tell you. Thanks, Gunny. Maybe you're just breaking up for me. Audio check. Yeah, I can hear you, Domin, but you were breaking up a little bit, uh, and Wings wasn't, so it might be your connection. Great. That's what I thought. The- the gun was breaking up, and uh, All right. I was actually the one, the one breaking up. All right, thank you very much. Let's go Thanks, on guys. to thank Mary Nick. Go ahead. No, I just put my hand down. Sorry. Oh, uh, there's dry fly. Dry fly. Go for it. Uh, Dom and you, you were breaking up, so I didn't know if it's dry fly next or Euler. Dry fly, dry fly, dry fly. I will move, but dry fly, please go. Hi. Um, uh, I was gonna throw in some. Uh, comments on some of the defense buildup. Um, in my career, I'm now retired, but in my career, I started out as a chemical engineer that went into uh, manufacturing, uh, working on the cell side of all kinds of different mechanical components. And I called on companies in the defense industry, as well as many, many others, aerospace, biomedical, automotive, you name it. And one thing I could tell you is that the military industry is uniquely capable of fast ramp up that i can absolutely tell you what would normally take someone like john deere or caterpillar or ford uh even boeing years to ramp up the military suppliers can ramp up at a much much faster rate and that includes things like robotics and automation and um uh all the kind of systems complex systems required to make 
make parts. It is especially true of the, the munitions side of things. I used to tour um, a couple different munitions plants because I was asked to make um, metal components that would go into the munitions. So you imagine you have a bullet or a, or a um, you know, for a, a machine gun or, or a sabot for a tank. There will be assemblies that those things are part of. Um, we were told we had to make the parts. And so we had to have a plan not only to meet the low volume capacity, but also have a plan to be able to ramp up in case of an emergency um, to meet a much, much higher. Now, we weren't required to actually make that automation. In other words, the fixtures, the tooling, all of that. We were not in a position where we had to actually make those those systems prior to. We had to have enough to meet the low volume requirement for sure. But the high volume requirement, no, you, you had to have a plan ready and it had to be credible and they actually audited it. So I have no fear that if it really gets serious that and the governments pull the trigger, um, the flow of munitions will pick up much faster than any of us can imagine. Now, will it be fast enough for Ukraine uh, against a huge push by Russia? That I can't say. But there is backing behind those industries. They're not they're not hollowed out. They're not empty. It, it will take some time. More importantly, it will cost money. And what Peter could probably tell us is, are there any, is there any noise uh, in the administration and in Washington to actually pull the trigger on the money? Because the thing that would hold us back in those days would not be our ability to do it. It would be the money to, to put in place for those fixtures, for that automation, uh, for the build-out. Because that would really be the, the proof that the decision has been made. And I had seen it happen after 9-11. I was actually in a military contractor the day of 9-11, watched the planes crash into the towers in their lobby with people who were in the military procurement. Ironically, on that trip, I was actually there looking for commercial work for companies who did military work. In other words, they were looking to get out of military some. Um, and after that, they turned around and just said, well, I guess we'll be back in the military business. And it was. I mean, the switch went on almost overnight. Those guys were making munitions and parts for trucks to haul tanks and all of that stuff literally within weeks after it. So to the people who are worried that industry isn't going to be able to step up, I would not lose sleep over this. That is not the problem. The problem will be the commitment and, and, and money uh, put forth by the governments. And that was my comment. Yeah, dry fly, that actually fits really well with what I saw about the British Spitfire production, because the thing, thing that was fascinating about it was in the first month, they only made 10 aircraft, uh, and they're like single seat fighters. And in the second month, they made 20. And in the third month, they made like 37. So they're almost doubling their production capacity every month, which is like an incredible rate of growth. So that's exactly what you're talking about. Um, that that's exactly what I'm talking about, and I've actually gone through with plans with people like that for um, uh, things like sabots for for tanks. And if people wonder what a sabot is, that's actually the projectile that tanks shoot, and it's not a one size fits all. They have various types of sabot used for different applications, whether they're anti personnel or whether they're armor piercing or whatever. And the plant has to be able to flexibly step up each and every one of those. We as component manufacturers had to have a plan to be able to match their requirements and do it 
very, very quickly if the need occurred. And in, and after 9-11, it did. I mean, they those guys just went like boom. So I, I don't think people need to lose sleep about the industry near as much as you're reading in the press. The question is, does our do our governments have the commitment to back it up with the money? And that will be the test. Yeah, I very much hope that they do. I know within the first couple of weeks of the uh, conflict, I forget the companies, it might have been Raytheon and another one that make javelins, were immediately talking about how to ramp up production, uh, both to replace uh, US javelins and also to send more to Ukraine. Um, I mean, we're what, like four months into this conflict, midway through month number four? Um, I would imagine that in the next four months, the coming four months, we're going to send a lot more arms to Ukraine in months five, six, seven and eight than we have in months one through four, because uh, both the political well-being there, I hope, and also, you know, industrial capacity waking up and coming online and, and building up really quickly, just like you pointed out. So let, let's hope that is the case. Right on. One thing that the OSIN people can look for to see if it's actually happening, and it's something I started doing this morning after listening to you all, but I really haven't dug into it is go to the job boards, Indeed, uh, Monster, all of those. And, you know, first go to something like Dun & Bradstreet or Mergent or one of the databases that show families of companies. Then then go to the job boards. After you've outlined, you know, how these companies are kind of spread out, um, find out where their plants are, then go to the job boards and find out are they hiring because many of these places will be hiring machinists. They'll be hiring assembly workers. They'll be hiring all of that for those plans. When you see pickups, you see shifts being added, um, you can bet money that the backfilling has really um, uh, started in earnest. And I used to do that as a person on the sell side, supply chain, you know, parts supply chain. I always looked to see, are the customers I was calling on hiring? If they're hiring, you can bet that there's a, the requirements are picking up. And that's that's better indication than being told by the purchasing people they're buying or not buying because they'll tell you stuff that may or may not be true. Uh, and the PR people, the people who have public releases, will tell you something that may or may not be true. But if they're actually putting, you know, the equivalent of boots on the ground on the factory floor, you know for a fact they're picking up. So it's just another thing for the OSINT people who are wanting to watch this whole vertical that's where you go to see what's happening. Go to the job boards. Anyway, it was a great discussion, and I'll listen offline. Thank you. Thank you, Dreyflight. River? Oh, boy. Sabos. So, real quick, derail to, to talk about something near and dear to my heart of the tanker. So, uh, the Sabo is a French word for boot. In the U.S. Army, the, the principal use of it is to create a boot around the log rod penetrator, which is actually the, the, the pointy end that's going to go after enemy armor. Uh, the latest, and I've been trying to catch up since I was so out of date, uh, version for the Americans is the M29A4, which is specifically designed to defeat not only armor, but also third-generation reactive armor that was developed to introduce shear against these long rod penetrators. We use, a, we use what's called a bore riding sabo, and so our penetrators are very, very long, very, very thin, and the fins are very, very small and do not touch the barrel. The only thing touching the barrel is the actual sabo boot. The Russia or the Soviets, uh, up until right before the, the fall of the Soviet Union, 
used sabos that were much shorter and fatter. That hasn't changed because of the nature of their ammunition. But they had great big fins on them, and so they'd be really, really accurate. But that, those fins were draggy, and their their sabos would, or common new sabos, would lose their velocity really, really fast. I think their latest generation of uh, penetrators has gone to a western style bore riding sabo with small fins to keep that velocity up and so yeah uh, sabos tanks this, this is riding my wheelhouse thank you dry fly for giving me a chance to to ramble about something i love hey how's the bridget hi there okay um uh, so this is with regards to what tom mentioned uh why would you produce a, a thousand if you only need to make 10. Um, maybe Tom could just quickly clarify because I do have a few things I want to mention around that, but I just want to be sure that I understood what he meant. Yeah, so what I mean by that is that because of these, because these things are not made by government-owned companies, they're in the West mostly made by you know private companies. Those private companies have got to make a profit so that they don't go out of business and if you've just had 10 or 15 years worth of peace as say there was through i don't know uh, the 1990s for example um you know ultimately if you're not getting enough uh, military contracts if people are only asking you to make you know 10 artillery shells a year or something that's not going to keep the company going and i think that's what dry was alluding to when he said on 9-11 that actually they were looking for civilian contracts and they were looking to get out of the defense industry. And so, you know, the problem is, is that it's like Wing says that you get years and years of like famine followed by feast in those years where there isn't war. It's very difficult for people to imagine that there's going to be a big conflict like this. I mean, I I certainly didn't think the Russians were going to invade in February. Um, And so as a result of that, you know, governments don't want to spend money uh, from, you know, from taxes on maintaining a military that they think they're not going to have to use. And equally, private industry subcontractors aren't going to have loads of um, industrial capacity sitting there idle, just ready to go when they haven't had a big order in, in say, 10 years, as certainly was the case in the 1990s. So it's just that people, if they're not expecting it, they're not going to spend the money, if that makes sense. And that's whether it's private industry or government spending, I think it's equally true. Okay, got it. Yeah, so uh, I do have a few things to mention around that. Then, um, uh, uh, of course, what you said is indeed true. Um, the, the, there are some uh, exceptions to this. Uh, this is generally why you, uh, so why you would want to make, say, um, you know, ten thousand instead of ten, is uh, you want economies of scale, and uh, this is why. Uh, this notion of dual-use technology is encouraged uh, as best as can, um, because then you can um, you can leverage uh, both peacetime uh, advancements as well as um, production capacity and economies of scale, and retask that um, uh, for uh, development of military hardware and uh, software technology. So, but by way of example. Um, you know, breakthroughs in artificial intelligence, which is my field, um, are directly applicable to military, um, uh, to have direct military applications uh, in the field of machine vision, uh, signal processing, and so on. And basically anything that comes out of a, you know, 
the silicon fabrication facility um, at scale, things like sensors. Um, this includes things like your accelerometer, gyroscopes, uh, CMOS sensors for, for cameras, um, uh, different kinds of alloys that are used in civilian uh, applications. But those kinds of things, because of the economies of scale, uh, are, are, are good uh, uh, good raw materials, um, and they are also uh, uh, cheap and in high volume. So I just thought I'd bring that into the discussion as far as the volumes uh, are concerned. Yeah, and, you know, I'm, I'm inclined to agree with you. Obviously, economies of scale obviously always make things cheaper because the more units you manufacture, the more you can get the cost per unit down. But I think something like that works very well for something that is in high demand all of the time. So, you know, that makes fantastic sense for, say, the civilian car market. If Ford knows it can sell, I don't know, 10 million units per year, it knows it can invest in a big factory to create more units to bring the cost per unit down. Um, so as a free market solution for something that's nearly always in demand, you know, the occasional recession aside, that makes perfect sense. I think the problem with military hardware is that although private subcontractors do produce these things, they're generally producing them for government contracts. There isn't really a sort of total free market in military hardware because well, you can't just make it for anyone. And there isn't like uh, consistent demand all year round. And, and this links into what Wings was saying about procurement of military things going massively over budget, things being crap um, and years of famine followed by years of feast because suddenly we need to create these things. So I think you're absolutely right about economies of scale. But I think that works much better in a free market for civilian goods where people always need them. Uh, I think for things like, you know, war items, um, there's probably a heck of a lot of money spent on, I don't know, F-35s or, or Warthog A-10s or something. But then after that, how many do they make? Probably none. Um, you know, so when they were first making laws and Javelins, they probably had a bit of economy of scale made, you know, 10,000 of these things. And then how many did they make in the second year or the third year? Probably not very many. So they probably scaled back their industrial capacity a little bit to save money. Um, and now they're having to scale it up. But fortunately, as Dryfly says, they can scale it up fairly quickly. D does that make sense, what I'm saying now? I'm kind of agreeing with you, but saying it, it, it doesn't work that way as much for the military, if that makes sense. Uh, you know, it, it makes sense what you're saying. Um, um, of course, I do, I do agree that uh, the entire package um, is not subject to this kind of economies of scale that I'm talking about. But the uh, individual components, not the whole, um, are subject to these economies of scale because uh, sensors are sensors and software is software. Um, so, but, but I, I do agree with you on the point that um, yeah, the, the item as a whole um, uh, can usually not be produced at scale. Um, you can't even sell it outside your country usually due to export control. Yeah, that makes sense. So, industrial components like microchips are going to be cheaper and cheaper. Um, you know. Uh, as we know, uh, which is going to bring down the cost of some of these things compared to what it would have cost to make them in, say, the 80s or the 90s. Uh, but the individual item itself of, say, an N-Law of a Javelin uh, or, or a Javelin, I should say, um, is going to make continue to be expensive because, you know, we're not all buying them. Are you there, Domin? Yeah, I'm here. But I keep hearing something. Does somebody have a hot mic, maybe? I thought somebody else was speaking. 
Um, let's just go on with, um, I don't know, let's go with Dunham. Does someone have a hot mic? I keep hearing a... a... Yeah, Euler, Oy- you need to mute your microphone once you finish, otherwise we can hear your background noise. Um, See, thanks for the feedback, Tom. That probably oh, was me, my apologies. Is it, is it my turn? Yeah. 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 So that that's really interesting because I, I it prompted me to look something up that I, I, I distinctly remembered. So on May the eighth, the uh, CBS News had an article with the chairman of, of Lockheed, and it really it really stuck out to me because uh, relative to the production of the Javelin, their uh, current production rate prior to the invasion was uh, two thousand one hundred per year. And they, he was quoted that they are taking those to 4,000 per year, which is a process, and, and I quote, that will take a couple of years to achieve, okay? And so you would assume part of that would go to these replenishing of the stocks have already been delivered, da-da-da-da-da. And so I, anyway, that's, that's just a real, that's, I mean, that's just what he said. He runs the company. But I've been in the camp that, you know, like like uh, Tom was saying, I think that was really good, you know, about these companies on a peacetime footing and have to run things for, you know, on a on a on a uh, on a contract basis. And while at the same time being responsible for, you know, to shareholders for for margins and and this, that and the other. And so the given the complication of these systems and whatnot, and they also mentioned the some of the the the, the bottlenecks of some of the uh you know, chipsets out of Asia, but, uh, you know, uh, you know, this isn't Rosie the Riveter back in 1942, you know, cranking out B-24s. I mean, these things, a lot of these things are really, really complicated. And I think, I think a lot of, you know, there's gotta be some sober thinking here on really what the, uh, you know, what the flex capacity is. And I think this, 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 this Lockheed guy, he, he told you, you're going to double the production to 4,000 and that's going to take a couple of years. So that stuck out to me, and I just want to relay. And it's it's open source out there if you want to look. Yeah, and you do wonder if somewhat more money was thrown at the problem, if they could increase their industrial capacity more quickly. So, you know, I'm, I'm assuming at, at some point, you know, someone in Lockheed has had a meeting with someone in the, the Pentagon or the Department of Defense and, and said, we can double our capacity, uh, but it's going to take two years and it's going to cost you, I don't know, $10 billion or whatever. And I'm completely making those numbers up um the, the 10 billion um and then what if someone in the department of defense goes okay we'll give you 20 billion how much more quickly can you do it so um as much as i believe what the lockheed person is saying it, there could also be a bit of negotiation with a government contract there so it, it you know it could be that like they're saying that it'll take two years so that they're offered more money to do it more quickly if that makes sense um but you know that's a good thing so uh hopefully if more money's thrown at the problem um, it, it can be produced more quickly. Yeah, I mean, but, but you know, and by the way, there was a meeting, and I can't remember what day it was, but there was a meeting of the White House with some of these defense contractors, and that would have been prior to this comment this gentleman made. And, you know, he is doubling the production. He's just saying it's going to take two years. And uh, anyway, it's, it's, it is what it is, but it's important because it's, this, this war of attrition is going to, you know, this is this is what it's going to come down to. All righty, Jens. Who's next? Finance. Hello, Axel. Long time no speak. Yeah. Hope all is well. Um, it. Uh, sorry, I've not been updated on Ukraine since uh, late last night. Um, as far as anything happening on the ground, 
that that said, uh, you know, it's a new sunny day. Hopefully all of our friends in Ukraine are as safe as possible, um, especially those uh, in the line of fire, which turns out to be way too many people. Uh, do we have any news on any of the grains? I know there's been all sorts of things with silos being built on the border and trains moving. Uh, I wondered if you or anyone else had seen anything. I haven't seen any new news today, but I would uh, love to hear something positive on that outlook. Wings, can you help? Uh, sorry, was that about grain? I'm probably the last person. I eat granola, that's about it. No, this is about the fact of whether we've had any news during the day and some good news as to what Ukraine has done in regard to the various front lines, because both Finance and I have been on conference calls for quite some time. Um, no. Uh, the, the first analysis of these satellite passes of Snake Island are coming out, and it looks like everything looks tickety-boo there. doesn't look like anyone dented anything, so don't know what that's about. Um, is tickety-boo British for good? Oh, yeah. tickety-boo is old. Tickety boo, squared away. Um, yeah, it, it it looks undamaged. I I think we'll still wait. Just waiting on um, uh, a friend to publish some pictures. Um, the the oil rigs. Uh, there's definitely one still on fire. It's it's sticking out like a proverbial at the minute. Uh, we're just waiting on a sat pass to have a look at the second one to see if another one's on fire. But um, the the RAF RC one three five actually. He looks like he's homeward bound now. He didn't hang around. He did maybe four, maybe five kind of laps of the Black Sea. Uh, and then he, he went RTB. So that that wasn't hanging around for some reason. It's a bit of a hop because obviously they fly from the UK down there. They don't seem to be forward basing them. Um, but the EP, Why not? That seems insane. Yeah, I I I think there's I think there's probably going to be reasons, but to be fair, the US um, still flies their RC one three five out of RAF Mildenhall as well, so they're they're not forward base. Uh, neither us or the or the US are forward basing them for some reason. Um, maybe maybe they're just content to get that kind of um, whatever the mission was. Maybe it was just a, a SAR mission, so they were just looking to take photographs of Snake Island um, and other things. And then once they got that done, the the EP, the EP eight's still up, so that's probably doing the signals intelligence. The AWACS is still up, so maybe they just didn't need to hang around very much. Uh, anticipate a forte being up, we just can't see it. So uh, no, this this feels like a pregnant pause in the Black Sea. So I would expect to see something kicking off, um, may, maybe next few hours. All right, and for for all the listeners, uh, sorry, and for all the listeners. For all of the listeners, I can speak English, really. Uh, one of the reasons I'm, I'm asking about grain updates is, as is coming out of the news right now, one of the problems that Ukraine is facing is that the new harvest season is starting, and they don't have a place to put the new grain uh, because the old grain hasn't moved out yet. Um, this is a unfortunate consequence of uh, the war of Russian genocidal aggression. So um, the uh, if you're worried about food and uh what uh what kind of knock-on effects this can have you were worried about the right things right now uh dry fly fire away hi i was gonna throw in a little more detail on uh that raytheon 2000 uh doubling production over two years um again i have a uh, i had an inside seat on a lot of that industry as well as the high volume mass-produced uh products 
and I can tell you Raytheon can produce more than more than double that production if it became really, really important. I am guessing, I don't know, but I'm guessing just having sat in on those kinds of discussions, I, you know, I wasn't a, a tier one supplier. I was like a tier three, tier four supplier that supplied their suppliers who supplied them that would then go into those kind of components. So imagine it would be a gearbox or it'd be a housing or it would be something like that. I didn't do the chips. I didn't do a lot of that stuff, but I did the mechanical components. So I had casting houses, uh, machine shops, powdered metallurgy, forgings, all that kind of stuff, stamping. Um, I could tell you the, the problem is tooling. And what Raytheon was telling the government is they can increase production up to a certain point. But after that, they're going to need a lot of tooling a lot of new machines into the supply chain. They're going to need commitments to people like the guys that I supported and represented to have um, to go out and buy the machines and know that they're going to get paid for. So they will either want a guaranteed contract for a long period of time to pay off the machines, which is commonly done at the start of a, a launch of a project, or they will want an upfront down payment, um, a tooling charge, so to speak, to pay for all the tooling upfront and the capacity, and then they will guarantee that capacity for a certain period of time. In other words, they will have a building for it, they will maintain it, they will have it ready to go, and they will certify that the product produces components um, to meet the, the satisfaction of the military. The idea that you could buy that stuff off the shelf from the commercial industry, which I also worked in, don't count on it. Some, sure, but almost none. Um, even the chips and the software will be done by different suppliers, different contractors, people with a different cost structure. Um, and even if they're the same companies, they'll be done by different divisions uh, that'll have be basically walled off both intellectually, you know, intellectual property wise, as well as um, certifications and qualifications wise. It's just a very, very different world. It's, it's common in the commercial industry to have those kind of divisions. In other words, the people who make components for um, biomedical, which I sold parts into, or automotive, which I also sold parts into, they can both make the parts, but they rarely make them out of the same facilities or using the same exact equipment. So people just have to understand that, yes, the economies of scale are there, but the real factor is going to be capacity and tooling. And Raytheon can probably double production without having a dramatic increase in capacity of tooling and, and the actual machining components, you know, the actual machining equipment. But at a certain point, they can't just add bodies or add shifts anymore. They'll have to actually add facilities. And that's, that's where you would see the real increase. It's possible. It could be done quicker than people realize but it will cost a lot of money and a lot of that money is up front. So just to fill in when people are reading these articles, kind of be a little bit skeptical about what you read because you're not getting the full picture. And I will listen again. Um, Dryfly, if you can stay as a speaker, because I'd, I'd love to ask a follow-up on that. So essentially it sounds like what you're saying is, is that, um, you know, doubling capacity over a couple of years could be a matter of getting, you know, more skilled, like labor, uh, running more shifts, getting more employees, that sort of thing, uh, as well as just, you know, the cost of input components, which are kind of variable costs. Whereas 
what you're saying is, is that in order to scale it up beyond that, there'd be a lot of capital investment costs, which are going to be more expensive. And you would only want to do if you're guaranteed a certain number of orders because you don't want to lose money on this. Um, that, that's exactly right. And, and, and it's not just at Raytheon or Lockheed or Grumman. It's going to be to their supply chain. So when you look at the old World War II bottle of caustic, and, and just for my a little bit of my credentials, I actually got I started out as a chemical engineer working in the egg processing industry. After about five or six years, I transitioned into a family business that sold components. And from that point on, the rest of my career, I was involved in in mechanical components. So mostly, you know, I still sold into process industry, but instead of working in the like uh, the uh, agricultural you know, processing plants, I actually sold to the people who made the valves that went into that industry or downhole or into automotive. And so as parts, it was all that kind of stuff. So I got to see that sausage being made. It's not just the capital that Raytheon will have to spend for their own plants. It'll be the whole vertical of the tiered supply chain. So they'll go to their machine shop and say, okay, we need you to triple production or quadruple production. Can you do it? And their answer will be, yeah, we can do it but we're going to have to buy four more uh, CNC machining centers and each one of them costs a million dollars. Do you got the money for that? Or do you have the contract for that? And they're going to go, Ooh, we don't have that yet. We don't have that commitment from the government, but what can you do without that commitment? Well, we can maybe double it because we'll add another shift. We'll go from, from, from one and a half shifts to full three shifts, you know, or we'll go from two shifts, five days, to three shifts, seven days. But that may take them a year and a half to, to scale it up. It means they got to hire people. <clears throat> they got to put that staff in. They got to get foreman. And it's not just, you don't just go out and pull guys off the street when you're doing, you know, five acts of CNC machining, you know, or you're doing um, <clears throat> elaborate, you know, investment castings like might be in uh, a missile. I mean, a missiles have really complicated components. So even though the, the technology itself is sophisticated, just the people who make the parts have to have real technology and they have to go through certifications. In other words, it's not enough to just make the part. They'll have a whole bunch of uh, quality checks that are really, really rigorous, both on the front end before a part's ever made and then for each part. Um, and it'll frankly require even things... Yeah. Can you can do you know a bit or can go over a bit about where those are located? Is this a supply chain that extends to neutral or problematic countries like China or is this a supply chain that is mostly hosted in the US, Canada and Western Europe? It's mostly US, Western Europe. I I really know of no parts that were critical. I personally know of no parts that were critical that were made in problematic countries, okay? The most problematic might have been, say, a Hungary or a Turkey. That was really, we worried about that. So, for example, these plants that I called on were all in North America. The companies I represented were all in North America. The most extreme I ever got to was working with companies uh, out of Israel. So, for example, I went on a whole tour of industrial uh, capacity of Israel up in the northern Galilee, you know, looking at people. And they were making um, components that were like uh, advanced um, uh, high alloy steel uh, investment castings and aluminum investment castings. And they did go into U.S. military components and they traded off. So while they might make parts for the Bradley, they were also making parts for the Merkava. Okay. 
And the, one of the investment foundries that I worked with was making parts for the Israeli uh, defense industry. And I want to say, I can't remember the name of the Israeli company because I didn't call on it, but it's one of the premier Israeli defense industry companies. But they were also making them for grooming and Lockheed and Raytheon. And that was how I got into those plants was because I was working with them. And I said, as I said earlier, ironically, they brought me on to help them find commercial work because I was stronger in commercial than I was in industri- in, in, in uh, military. I didn't like military industry, not for morality reasons. It's just a difficult business. I mean, I stayed out of biomedical as much as I could do for the same reasons. It's very, very problematic, very labor intensive for someone like me who's interacting with the engineers constantly. Um, I preferred things like automotive and stuff like that. Uh, but I did get dragged into that and I got dragged into those. And, it, and after 9-11, I saw how fast they picked up, and it was shocking to me. I mean, it was so much faster than a commercial business like Caterpillar or John Deere would ramp up. It was just staggering how quickly that industry can go to speed when they have to. But the criteria is that it costs big money, and it costs big money up front. In other words, you either have to guarantee them production quantities going way out into the future, or you just have to upfront that capital, period. No ifs, ands, or buts. I, I mean... Will, Guaranteed production quantity shouldn't be difficult, especially for artillery, given that, one, uh, we're seeing uh, heavy use and heavy demand uh, on the ground right now. And everything we've heard from our artillery experts is that the um, use of that the doctrines are changing in, I know, America for more artillery rounds going forward per unit on the ground. So I, I would think I would think so. I would assume guaranteed production should be easy. Right. Production I- should be easy. Right, from I would a business think so. perspective, from everything we've heard, from every I, I analyst, think so, every but I, I would think so, but I could tell you a fact, having done sat in on some with the purchasing people and some of the managers uh, on those meetings, they will not do it on a blessing or on a projection. They will want to see the numbers. Uh, they will want to see the contract in hand. In other words, the government will have to come to them with a contract because they will not hang – too many military right yeah absolutely a a promise yeah it needs to be on ink right someone needs to be we have all been screwed we have all been screwed by the government you know and so we're just very very cautious in that industry you they sign the contract congress puts the money in the bank um they will they will build build it out there's no doubt in my mind so the, the point i guess i was trying to make is the money is more important than the capacity. The capacity is there. And by the way, there is far more machining capacity and far more manufacturing capacity in the U.S. than you read in the, in the news. Yes, you do not buy those products at Target or Walmart. The cheap, lower-end stuff, that all comes from offshore. But if you walk into a factory that makes hydraulics, that makes really high-end stuff, the stuff that goes into power plants, that goes into chemical plants, there's a lot of capacity in North aerospace, biomedical, all of that stuff, the high-end stuff. There's still tons of that made in the USA, far more than anyone in any, Western Europe, far more than anyone in uh, the average American who's not in manufacturing realizes. So you, you have to just be a little bit suspicious of what you read because there's a lot of people out there selling clicks in this industry. And again, it's just for background, I'm retired now. But I got a, a master's in manufacturing systems after I made the switch from chemical processing to mechanical processing. And I mentor engineering students to this day. And I place a lot of engineering students in high-end manufacturing in North America. 
Well, we, we appreciate your expertise. Thank you very much, Dryfly. And Mrs. Uh, B, uh, let's, let's, uh, we, I'm sure we will come back to this. This is a hot topic. Yeah, uh, you will, we'll be talking about this as, as long as this war goes on because it, along with the pain we're feeling financially in our pocketbooks at oil and gas and in the uh, food at the grocery store, these are issues that are not going to go away. And nope. Russia has made them a weapon. So recognize yep. it, understand it, fight it, and let's move on. Mrs. B, you are up, ma'am. So hi everyone. So so to continue to bit on that topic, I mean, so to the so so I know that for example in the UK I've worked in a couple of uh, defense companies, because there's also there's obviously are those very large organisations that can do everything, but there's all the very small ancillary companies that need to feed into the really big organisation, and that do not have the capacity to. Uh, uh, to to produce the goods, they do not have the staff. Uh, the staff is not skilled enough. So I don't know. It works in the US, but in in, in... Mike check. I think yeah, we lost her. Too. I'm driving. Finance. Can you send her a DM? Yeah, I moved her down, Mrs. B. If you can hear me, uh, we moved you down because we lost your audio. We couldn't hear you anymore. So when you can uh, interact again, please request to move up. We would love to hear what you have to say. Can, can um, I add one thing on that? Because that's the world I lived in. Those small companies can step up, but again, the check has to flow through to them. That's what she's not seeing in the U. I could tell you right now, that's what she's not seeing in the UK, and we didn't see it in North America either until it got serious. After 9-11, it got serious, and the checks flowed through from the top. You know, the OEM, the Raytheons, it flowed through to those little companies. What Raytheon and Lockheed will try to do in Grumman will try to do is they will try to get stuff from those little companies without committing to them. They, the little companies will not provide those, that capacity until they get that commitment. So when people are looking at it, the commitment doesn't just go to the top OEM. It goes to the whole, has to go to the whole supply chain and those contracts have to flow all the way down. Absolutely. Uh, Mrs. B, can you, do you have audio again? Yes, I think I, I think I do. Can you hear me now? Yes, we can hear you. Sorry about Thank that. I, I pushed you down right away because we lost your That's audio. That's really kind. Please Thank try you. again. Thank you. But I mean, to the point of dry fire, this is exactly the case. And then going forward to what dry dry wings was saying earlier, a few weeks, um, uh, a few moments ago. I mean, it's the whole. I mean, I specialize in supply chain and manufactured, and I worked in companies who could tell me how many post-it notes they had, but they couldn't tell me how much gunpowder they had. And they were really not bothered when I told them how disturbing I found all of that. And you've got to go through all of those settings. So you build grenades. So you're in the middle of nowhere. You need to get the staff. You don't get the staff. Uh, very often we rely on uh, you, we rely on sort of a different kind of time of staff. And then you have the problem of understanding and everything. And those little companies, uh, as they need to just pay there and then. And like Dry Fry say, you need to have the money so that you can produce. And this is, um, and I mean, there are, they are some kind of a really, really sort of a, a huge constraint uh, because everybody said, well, we, the MOD, will pay you. We're reliable. We know you, who, you, who you know who we are. But, yeah, we know who you are, but we still have got to pay our staff. And this is exactly what happened when there's some procurement with the NHS and, um, and some big giant organization of that nature. So this is going to be going up front uh, additional issues for, for capacity and also for the upscaling because the, there is some the, the i mean we have some serious skill shortage uh, in the uk in some in some of those areas and i'm showing sure some of the countries 
um, and and then obviously in a lot of IT skills, when we rely on Eastern Europe skills, there's something else, some kind of a bank of resources that maybe we cannot rely on anymore because of the uh, because it's even more acute because of the war. So that's all I wanted to add. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. And we sh certainly should be doing better. Sorry, you have me walking my dog while I try to run the space. Joseph, come speak. Hey, finance. Uh... Hope you're having a good day. Uh, yeah, so uh, I'm, I'm certainly not an expert in this, but I just want to bring up, I guess, maybe two salient points uh, for the discussion. Uh, the first is, uh, you know, we talk about this once in a while, but I think, you know, it's worth underlining that in terms of military production, uh, NATO or I guess the U.S. in particular, we just weren't we weren't thinking in these terms or preparing in these terms of the force structure of the Ukrainian military before this. Right. Um the U.S. doesn't have a need to mass produce enough javelins to destroy, like, the entire Soviet military, right? Javelins were a very specific tool used for a specific purpose. And the assumption has always been that NATO will have an air force when they go up against an enemy. And it's the same with artillery, right? Like, um, if Ukraine gets as much artillery as they want, around 2,000 artillery pieces, they're going to have more artillery than the U.S. Army, the, the largest army in the world. Um, so, I mean, it's just uh, I, it's not that I don't think that our uh, production capabilities can can meet that challenge. It's just that, you know, it's important to realize that, you know, this army that Ukraine is building is going to be huge, absolutely huge, even in U.S. terms. And it's uh, not something that NATO was entirely prepared for to build an army outside of a conception of a superior air force. Um, and then the second point I would just bring up is that um, we are seeing, you know, a huge increase in not only uh, Ukrainian demand for these shells, but for um, a lot of other armies that are going to be backfilling with uh, NATO weapons, right? Um, like Poland and all the Baltic states and probably Romania, um, they've given Ukraine a lot of Soviet artillery, and therefore they're going to be switching over to NATO standard artillery. So I have to imagine if I'm an artillery producer, and again, I'm not an expert in this field, but that looks to me like a, a long sustained demand, right? Um, every military, the U.S. military is looking at artillery right now and saying, hmm, maybe we need more of this stuff. And I think every NATO military is as well. And so I think that probably at least long term, uh, we're going to see enough uh, production to, to cover that uh, issue. But I don't know what that means for Ukraine in the shorter than medium term. Thanks. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's that was the assumption behind my comment on the money should be there for uh, long-term production demand because, uh, you know, even the U.S. is going to want to refill some of what we're sending to Ukraine. And there's a lot of times in history where, you know, we always assumed better air superiority, but maybe each conflict gives you an idea of what future conflicts look like. Surface-to-air missiles have gotten to a point where maybe that's not a good assumption if we're up against a serious force. Um, so, yeah, everyone's going to be looking for artillery. Everyone's going to try to learn some lessons from this. I absolutely agree with you, and I hope that this gets the uh, the money spigot following the, and the industrial spigot flowing. Uh, Ricardo, I believe you're next. Yeah, I'll be quick because I'm about to head in a meeting. But to kind of follow up on dry fly, uh, the, the whole supply chain for supplying uh, ammunitions, um, the jobs it's created. So when I was younger... I uh, worked for a company that, that actually built crates, uh, packaging for torpedoes, uh, machine guns. Uh, the, the Probably the most famous thing we did was building uh, warhead crates 
for uh, the Honest John Warhead. And so, and those were like, had to have, you know, we, we would, out, we would get a contract and then you'd have to have special lock and camber. You'd have to have cradles that were shock absorbers. Uh, there's so much that goes into this. It's not just the weapons themselves, but it's also the crates, the packaging. Uh, there's a spec to it. And those create jobs, even down to like nuts and bolts uh, are specific to um, lengths and sizes and weights. Uh, placement of skid, where skids go for forklifts to balance it out. I mean, there's a, there's a lot that goes into it. And that's just one aspect that I did when I was, when I was younger. Great. Thank you. And we have a large number of new people that I just raised up. Do any of you have anything else you'd like to add? It seems we have a number of people very versed in the space. Mrs. B, Dryfly, uh, Mich- Michelle or Michelle?